The title of this message is Stand in Amazement. Stand in Amazement. Christopher Columbus, an explorer and navigator, trekked across the Atlantic Ocean in the late 1400s, making a total of four voyages. And during his first long and arduous voyage, he kept a detailed diary. And in the diary, Columbus mentions everything from the wildlife he encountered, like dolphins and birds, to the weather, to the moods of his crew. And it's said that no matter what he recorded, he would write this same phrase day after day. The phrase was, this day we sailed on. This day we sailed on. That may not seem significant or impressive, but with all journeys, it's a day-to-day moment-by-moment effort to sail on. And now let me shift a little bit and let me take us from the seas to the football stadium. Walter Payton, maybe a name that you've heard before, former football player and running back for the Chicago Bears, regarded as one of the greatest football players of all time. During a Monday night football game between the Bears and the Giants, one of the announcers observed that Walter Payton had accumulated over nine miles in career rushing yardage. The other announcer remarked, yeah, and that's with somebody knocking him down every 4.6 yards. Walter Payton, he knows that everyone, even the very best, gets knocked down. The key is to get up and run again just as hard. Now from the football stadium, to the basketball court. Back in the day, there was a commercial featuring Dwayne Wade. It was for a shoe commercial uh, called Converse. And in this commercial, they played, a, they played clip after clip of Wade getting knocked to the hardwood floor. That was followed by clip after clip showing him getting up from each fall. And a proverb appears on the screen that, read, that reads, fall down seven times, stand up eight. And all three of these accounts, although unrelated, have something in common. They speak of pressing on, of striving for more, of continuing on, of not losing hope. For you as a Christian, what keeps you going? What gets you back on your feet when you get knocked down? Every day we face things that we don't anticipate. Every day we're greeted with various temptations. And every day we sin against others and others sin against us. And all too often the complications and difficulties of life can get the best of us. Many, many of us struggle joylessly through the Christian life in a fallen world. We find ourselves with heads hanging, bodies slumped over, and having thoughts of failure and doubt more often than finding ourselves with heads held high, bodies upright and full of confident assurance. Now we have to ask ourselves, could it be that we live out of our own resources and strength rather than living out of the glories of the gospel? Could it be that we live out of the lies we tell ourselves in our inner thoughts, and therefore rob ourselves of the power of God. Even with right theology and doctrine, the practical day-to-day living can be difficult. Endless temptations, constant doubts, wrong thinking, little progress in the faith can all have us wondering, I can't keep going on like this. I didn't know it was going to be so hard. Is there light at the end of the tunnel? Are things ever going to get better. This morning, we're going to go back to the basics. Perhaps going back to the basics will remind us of who God is and who we are in light of his saving work in us. Perhaps going back to the basics will sure up any misunderstandings of the gospel and the Christian life. Perhaps going back to the basics will help us to see Christ in a blinding, blindingly new way. Perhaps going back to the basics will bring us to a realization that we need to come to the end of ourselves 
if we're ever going to bring honor and glory to God. So my prayer is that the spirit of truth would lead and guide us to a greater understanding of Jesus Christ so that we would stand amazed by who we are because of him. The main point this morning is God has reconciled us to himself by the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And if you're taking notes, here's our outline. Number one, we should know who we were. Verse 21. Second, we should know who we are now, verse 22. And third, we should know what we need to do, verse 23. So let's start by looking at the the first critical thing every believer needs to know. We should know who we are on our own, verse 21. Paul says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. In verses 15 to 20, which we looked at in the previous two times, the Apostle Paul gives us a glorious description of Jesus Christ. We learn that Jesus Christ is supreme over all things. Now in verses 21 and 23, our text for this morning, Paul's not leaving the topic of the supremacy of Christ, but he shifts it a bit and makes it specific to the, to the Colossian believers and to all of us who believe. He began by targeting who Christ is, but now he narrows in on who we are in light of who Christ is. So look at verse 21. And you, talking about you Colossian saints, and by extension, you believers listening this morning, this is who you used to be. This is who you once were, alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Paul's speaking of a past condition You formerly were this way. At a previous time, you were alienated, that is, estranged, separated, and cut off. And keep in mind, this is in relation to God. God and sinful man can't be reconciled because sin has alienated us from God. There's an infinite barrier that stands in the way of man and God. Do you remember what happened in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned? They were driven out of the Garden. They were cast out of the Garden. Adam and Eve lived by the principle that all people born into this world live by. Not your will be done, but mine. And because of that, everyone is born alienated, estranged from God. Our position from the start is one of separation. And this position is continuous. It persists on and on. In other words, it's a settled state of alienation. And if that's not bad enough, we're also hostile to God, enemies, suppressors of the truth, sons of disobedience, God-haters, opposed to God. It's not that we don't want God, it's that we're against God, actively against him actively opposed to him, actively hostile to him. Look at verse 21 again. Hostile to him in mind and in evil deeds. The term mind is connected to the Hebrew concept of the heart. And this is what the term meant for Paul in this usage. Paul's talking about an enmity of mind and heart, which can be used interchangeably. It describes a deep-seated, heart-driven, and whole person rejection. This is the mindset or disposition of unbelievers. Paul's not sugarcoating anything here. He's using very strong language. We're told our hostile mind leads to evil deeds. The hostile mind expresses itself, reveals itself in evil deeds. Corrupt minds and hearts results in immoral behavior. In other words, we were enemies in thought and deed, at war with God in attitude and action, hostile and corrupt in heart and in hands. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 8-7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 
Man isn't basically good as far too many people seem to think. Man is comprehensively corrupt. Now, is this your understanding of the depravity of man? Let me say this that this doesn't mean unbelievers are as bad as they can be or are, or are incapable of acts of kindness or goodwill. It does mean unbelievers have no ability or desire to do spiritual good or save themselves from sin. The sinner may be sincere, religious, and even moral, but he's still alienated, hostile to God, at war with God. And let me make another important note. We're not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. I'll say that again because I want this point to stick. We're not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. Sinfulness doesn't come from doing evil deeds. Evil deeds come from our sinfulness. To say it another way, we don't become sinners the first time we sin. We are, we are sinners. We're already sinners. And so we sin by nature and by choice. It comes from the inside out. Before salvation, we're all enemies of God and our disposition is to do evil continually. This verse goes, on, this verse goes against the false idea that unbelievers are apathetic, indifferent, or neutral in their relation to God. To illustrate this, being a parent of three young kids, I often hear from parents further along the line how, their teenage, how the teenage years brings out the worst in children. And that's not something I'm looking forward to, but something I hear about a lot. We know that all children are, are rebellious from the womb, but maybe during the teenage years, expressions of rebellion are heightened. Imagine a family that seems to have it all together. A nice house, good jobs, mom and dad who love, care, provide, help, and sacrifice for their children. When the kids get sick, mom is there tenderly caring. When they need to go to a birthday party, dad drives them. When there's weekend soccer games or baseball games, mom and dad set aside their own hobbies to support their kids. However, one day, the son or daughter rebels. They no longer communicate. They, they stop listening. They do what they want, how they want, and when they want. And nothing is going to get in their way. They just do whatever pleases them. Would you say that the teenager is indifferent to their parents? Would you say they were apathetic? Would you say they were neutral? Of course not, because the teenager is in rebellion, self-centered rebellion. They're actively opposed and show a practical hatred to their parents who have provided so much. And here's the point. To the degree that the parents have been good and loving, it makes the hostility all the more despicable and all the more unforgivable. To the degree that the parents have been good and loving, it makes the hostility all the more despicable and all the more unforgivable. This verse teaches us that we're rebels. Scripture doesn't paint us a picture of neutrality. Rather, it paints us a picture of weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies of God, Romans 5. It paints us the picture of dead in sins and transgression, trespasses, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2. It paints us the picture of loving the darkness rather than the light, for our deeds were evil, John, John says in John 3, 19 and 20. Romans 1 teaches us that unbelievers know God, but don't honor him as God or give him thanks. They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. This is the picture of who we are, who we were on our own. Alienated, hostile, enemies, rebels, haters of God, and not wanting it any other way. We learn here that on our own, we're desperately lost. 
not looking for God, but at war with God, not seeking God, but striving against God. And this truth ought to pierce the depths of our hearts. This truth ought to, ought to break us and humble us. If you're a believer, that was your condition before coming to Christ. If you're an unbeliever, this is your present condition before God. May this reality help us to see the depravity of man on a new level. May this teach us to be patient and loving with everyone because we understand that which we, we've come from. And this leaves no room for pride or for boasting or for arrogance. This should motivate and fuel our evangelism to the alienated and hostile in mind. Brothers and sisters, life without Christ is darker than dark can be. However, what a glorious past tense. What a glorious past tense. We, were once, we once were hopeless, helpless, powerless. We once were alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. That's who we were on our own, but it's not who we are now. And how can that be? It wasn't our course of action to change from our natural state of alienation and hostility toward God. So how is it possible for those who were in a continuous, settled state of rebellion from and against God to be reconciled? We find the answer in our second point. The second thing we should know is we should know who we are now because of Jesus Christ, verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul goes from explaining who we once were to who we are now. Our past was darker than dark, but now it's brighter than bright. This is a strong contrast that we see. Yet, now, or but now, now at this current present time, he has reconciled us. He has reconciled me. He has reconciled you. This is specific. This is salvific. This is particular, directed and pinpointed. The question is, what took place so, so that we can be reconciled to God? How can the barrier be removed that infinitely stands in the way between sinners and God? The Son of God, Jesus Christ, became a human being. Real earthly body, real physical flesh and humanity, real blood that was shed for us, real suffering of the cruelest, cruelest form imaginable, real receiving upon himself the righteous wrath of God, real death in the place of sinners. Like I mentioned last time, God can't just erase sins. He can't just overlook them. He, he can't lower his standard. He can't close his eyes. That would compromise his divine character. God is, God is so holy, perfect, and righteous that he can't pretend that the alienation, the hostility, the evil deeds didn't happen. No just and righteous judge can do that. God has to punish sin. Remember our former condition. We were in a state of rebellion, not wanting it any other way. We couldn't recon reconcile ourselves to him. No one can. And even our greatest efforts and ceaseless striving of living better, trying harder, can't undo a single sin we've committed. Is God holy? Yes. Must he punish sin? Yes. Does he punish sin? Again, yes. How does he punish sin? He punishes Jesus Christ in our place. And Jesus Christ suffers as if he were hostile to God, as if he were alienated from him, as if he committed all our evil deeds. Christ dies instead of us so that we might have eternal life. 
Now, does that sound too good to be true? You've got to be saying to yourself, are you kidding me? This can't be true. But that's exactly what the gospel is. That's why it's called the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Next, we, we, we see who does the reconciling. Who does the reconciling? God does. God has to be the one to reconcile us. Meaning, if reconciliation were ever to occur, he has to do it. It's God's work. God is the one who initiates this reconciliation, and it's accomplished by means of Christ's death on the cross. Another important question, where does this reconciliation happen? Where does it happen? The text says, in his body of flesh by his death. In his body of flesh by his death. So does it happen to us or inside of us? No, the text tells us it happens outside of us. It's by the merit of another. Reconciliation is in Jesus, in his body of flesh by his death. The word reconcile means to change or to exchange. And it speaks of a change in relationship, namely our relationship with God. And the word used in this verse is an intensified version, uh, intensified version of the word, meaning completely and totally, thoroughly reconciled. We need to know that not until the barrier is removed, not until the obstacle is lifted, not until, uh, not until the obstacle is lifted, not until the offense is removed, can there be reconciliation. When people change from being at enmity with each other to being at peace, they're said to be reconciled. In legal disputes, two families can't come together. A husband and wife can't come together until there's arbitration and the offense or the blockage is removed. And the amazing thing is, as we know, God is the offended party. Yet God is the one who removes the offense in the giving of his son, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. And it's by the cross that the enmity between God and man was slain. It's not by good works, not by keeping the law or the golden rule, not by measuring up. That's not what brings reconciliation. It's not by how we live. It's because Jesus died. He made peace through the blood of his cross, Colossians 1.20. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, Colossians 2.14. There's a story told of a husband and a wife who, was, who became estranged and decided to separate and go their own ways. They moved away and lived in different parts of the country. And one day the husband happened to return to the city on business and went out to the cemetery, to the grave of of their only son. And he was standing by the grave, reminiscing fond memories when he heard a step behind him. Turning, he saw his estranged wife. The initial impulse of the both of them was to turn away. But they had a common binding interest in that grave. And instead of turning away, They clasped clasped hands over the grave of their son and were reconciled one to another. And it took nothing less than the death of their son to reconcile them. It took nothing less than death to reconcile them. In a greater and more significant way, it takes nothing less than death, the precious blood of Christ, to reconcile sinful man to holy God. R.C. Sproul, he said, once we are reconciled to God, the estrangement and hostility is over. The peace is sealed for eternity. Christ's death didn't just reconcile man to God, but it also serves a further purpose, which brings up the question, why did God accomplish reconciliation through the death of his son? 
Look at verse 22. In order to present believers, in order to present you as holy and blameless and above reproach before him, to present you who were once unholy, culpable, and a reproach in his sight. God, through Christ, reconciles us to himself so that we might be presented before him first holy, meaning pure, separated from sin, set apart to God by Christ's righteousness. Number two, blameless, which means without blemish, free from physical or moral defects. God looks at his children and sees no blemish. And number three, above reproach, faultless, free from accusation, not subject to or deserving or worthy of a charge of wrongdoing. Not only free from blemish, but also free from the charge of it. Think about that. All charges dropped because Jesus bled in our place. Nothing sticks. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Romans 8.33. Once we've been reconciled to God, no charges can be brought against us. Nothing can change our relationship with God. And taking the metaphor of Christ, taking the metaphor of Christ and his bride, the church, we find similar language in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. For what purpose? Verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This is what Christ has done and what he does for you. Jesus Christ laid the groundwork for us to be reconciled to God. When God looks at us, therefore, he sees no past rebellion, no sin. He sees only holiness, blamelessness, and no one can bring a charge against us. God sees us now as we'll be in heaven when we're glorified. He views us clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And not only are we declared righteous, but we're also made new creatures with a new disposition that loves God, that hates sin, that desires obedience, and is energized by the indwelling Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That means that we, we, we now can and we now want to do the will of God. This is the reality of who we are before God. God knows everything that has ever gone through your mind, everything you've ever done, even the, the things people don't know about. And yet, he loves you. What a truth that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, he gives his son for us. And so, a rebel becomes his child. And so, those who turned our backs on God can be his friend. Now there's no more condemnation. There's no more wrath for the sins you commit or will continue to commit. Why? Because there's no more wrath to pour out on you. It's all been absorbed by Christ. The question isn't, why doesn't God save my unbelieving friends and family? The question is, why would God save me? Why me? Why would God extend such grace to me? And as, as, as we sung, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. He took my sins and sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden of Calvary. He suffered and died for me. Next, we see that this presenting is future. However, that doesn't deny what occurred in the present. We live now in light of who we are. 
This is the language of justification, which takes place once for all and is permanent. Nothing can change our status or standing. Nothing we do can add to our righteousness before God. Nothing we do contributes to our righteousness before God. No efforts on our part can improve our standing before God. Again, we need to ask why. Because our holiness and righteousness is in Christ alone, not in ourselves. Our holiness and righteousness are in Christ alone, not in ourselves. This is something we need to know and something we need to believe. Our standing is permanent. We're not guilty. There's no condemnation. However, the presence of sin still remains, and we're by no means close to where God wants us to be. This is part of the struggle of the Christian life. Only Christ has lived it perfectly, which means that none of us can fully live out the Christian life. But we're not left to our own. We're in Christ and Christ in us. And we can only live the Christian life in Christ. Meaning apart from Christ, we can do nothing. In other words, all of our spiritual life, all of our Christian life must come from the Lord Jesus Christ. It flows from him to us by the Holy Spirit. And we're progressively being transformed by his grace into the image of Jesus Christ. So what God declares us to be in standing or position, he continually works through the Holy Spirit so that Christ may be formed more and more in us. And may this be a reminder that Christ has completely changed your life and reconciled you to God. God knows us because he made us And he sends his son to be for us what we couldn't be for ourselves and to do for us what we couldn't do on our own. Your identity is in Christ. Your wonderful position is in Christ. And this is a great reminder. Remind yourself again and again that there's more mercy in Christ than sin in you. There's more mercy in Christ than sin in you. Rehearse the good news of the gospel daily, that you may be consumed by a gracious Savior that has saved you through and through. Again, none of us have arrived. We're, we're far from where we need to be. And let's face it, we fail and stumble in many ways. But because of Christ, we, we can be confident and, and boldly draw near to the throne of grace. We can stand, we can stand boldly before God that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And stand we can because we've been fully forgiven. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. We've covered who we were on our own, who we are now because of Jesus Christ. And now we turn lastly to what we need to do in response to Christ. That's the third critical thing to know. We should know what we need to do in response to Christ, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. God, through Christ, has reconciled us to himself. Now what? Are we free to do whatever we want? Do we have license to sin because of the full and complete forgiveness we have in Christ? As Paul says, may it never be. It isn't enough just to be saved by grace. We also need to live by grace. We just learned that a change occurred that had nothing to do with us, but everything to do with Christ. It would only make sense, then, that a truly changed heart from the inside out would be expressed in a changed life. Jesus Christ changes everything, our hopes, our thoughts, our decisions, our reactions to adverse circumstances, our responses to those 
who sin against us. Paul is warning the Colossian believers here and us not to take Christ for granted. To do so would be to trample on the precious blood of Christ. Once you're saved, it's not time to relax. It's time to serve your master, Jesus Christ. Once you're saved, it's, it's the beginning to a life lived and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're all works of progress. And we see here, one of the purposes of reconciliation is personal holiness. That's what Paul's teaching. We have to understand that from the teaching of Scripture, genuine faith is assured of continuing to the end. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. John 6.39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So Scripture teaches that true faith will persevere to the end. On the other hand, Scripture also teaches human responsibility. And the thing we have to understand about human responsibility is that it's never separated from, never severed from the saving work that has already occurred in us by the work of Christ and the regenerating power and work of the Holy Spirit. Human responsibility is never separated or severed from the work that's already been done in us through Christ. Therefore, our responsibility is actually a dependence, a trust, an outworking of the inward change that has already taken place. And a good place to go for this is Philippians 2, 12 and 13, where Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So according to those verses, what are we to do? Work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's our responsibility. However, verse 13 tells us that it's God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Meaning, God calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, yet he's the one working the desire and giving us the ability to do the work. You can think of it this way. Likely, you've, you've all seen a demo display with an airstream and a ping-pong ball floating on top of the, the blowing air. And the ball stays afloat as long as it's in the path of the air. But what's keeping the ball afloat? It's the power of the blower or the air, the, the air thing that's energizing and keeping the ball afloat. Likewise, for believers, we need to stay in the path of the air, but it's really God who's energizing and working and keeping us afloat. Sanctification is God's work, but he performs it through the diligent and righteous pursuits of his people. We have all that we need in Christ to live the Christian life. We just need to tap in, if you will, to the resources available to us. Look back at Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that, you've, that, you've, that you heard. This is what we're to do in response to what Christ has done. Continue in the faith. And when Paul uses this conditional if, it doesn't express Paul's doubt for the Colossian believers. It's also not a condition by which we keep up our salvation. Our eternal salvation never depends on our performance. The if here indicates not doubt, but Paul's confidence. Paul fully expects the Colossian believers will continue in the faith. And we've seen this throughout chapter 1. Paul is writing to believers who are genuine. We weren't saved by our doing, and we don't continue on by our doing. It's Christ in us, and we live out of that union and out of that communion. Nevertheless, the statement shows that faithfulness to the end is essential in the Christian life. And the word continue here means to remain or to abide, to, to stay, to persist in, 
to draw one's strength from the source. So believers are to continue in the faith by drawing from the source, which is God's gracious work in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And make note of this, continuing in the faith has nothing to do with salvation. Again, Paul's talking to believers. However, this, has, this is talking about sanctification. We don't continue on for righteousness, but we continue on from righteousness. Remember, reconciliation is all of God's work. If we had nothing to do with it before, then nothing can change it after. So living with a sense of, living with a sense of doing things for God's, for God's approval so that he doesn't look, on, look down on you is a false view of who God is and who you are. Living and striving to do good for God's acceptance as if you could lose it is a false view of who God is and who you are. Nothing we've done, are doing, or will ever do will change our standing before God. We stand before God in the righteousness of Christ. And that's what God sees. We've talk, we talked about this earlier. However, our holy, blameless, above-reproach position is proved through how we persevere in the faith. Again, this isn't saying that a believer can lose their salvation. There's a great quote that goes, If a person who is in Christ could actually walk away from him for good, denying the faith, that person would have to be brought down from the heavenly places in Christ, Ephesians 2.6, unresurrected with Christ, Ephesians 2.6, unburied with Christ, Romans 6.4, uncrucified with Christ, Romans 6, 6, become unalive with Christ, Ephesians 2, 5, become spiritually dead again, Ephesians 2, 1, and be placed into Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. So although loss of salvation is never taught in Scripture, what is taught is counterfeit faith or superficial faith or spurious faith. As famously put, a faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. This is what John talks about in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Scripture teaches that faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. It's demonstrated, it's proven, shown in works and deeds. Saving faith is a persevering faith, and without persevering faith, there's no salvation. Someone else also said, if we could lose our eternal salvation, it wouldn't be eternal. Let it be known that our actual lives have to demonstrate real belief. And that might make some of us uncomfortable how we live our lives demonstrates what we really believe. And this may hit a sensitive nerve for some of you when I say this. It's not a period of belief, but a life of belief that demonstrates saving faith. But know this, if you have saving faith, you'll never lose it. And if you lose it, you never had it. Paul Washer said, if a person professes faith in Christ and yet falls away or makes no progress in godliness, it doesn't mean that he has lost his salvation. It reveals that he was never truly converted. That's not to say that believers can't go through periods of time showing little to no signs of fruit. But if someone professes faith and seems to follow the Lord closely for a couple of years, and that's followed by decades of absence, do you think that shows a believing life? The teaching of Scripture and my understanding of it would say no. But, but that doesn't mean there's not hope. For the person who's rebelled their whole life or for the person who showed some signs of faith and then walked away, there's still time for the Lord to save. Our God is mighty to save. Keep praying and proclaiming the gospel. And brothers and sisters, be encouraged because if you're a Christian, you're going to persevere. 
and you're going to persevere because you're being protected and preserved by God. He's going to hold fast to you. 1 Peter 1.5 Believers are by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We're protected and guarded by the power of God. Jude 1 To those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. God not only initiates salvation, but he also completes it through Christ, thus preserving or keeping the believer secure for eternal life. We also shouldn't forget that Christ is actively interceding on our behalf, daily ensuring that not one of those for whom he suffered and died will be lost. And that should be comfort to you. Next, Paul goes on to say, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. We have three words here that we need to quickly define. The first word, stable, means to stand established, to stand grounded, to stand on a firm foundation. Second word, steadfast, is the idea of being firmly seated or located on that stable foundation. And the third, not shifting, is the idea of not moving away, never abandoning, never dislodging oneself from the foundation, refusing to be moved. This is all in relation to the, to the hope of the gospel. Listen to the fitting words of a well-known hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Persevere in the hope of the gospel. Be confident in the gospel. And don't shift away. Don't stray from the good news that the Lord has put away your sins and that you won't die because someone else has already died on your behalf. Look to him and to no other for hope because we're complete in Christ, Colossians 2.10. To go to another hymn, In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. Hope is found in Christ alone. Don't drift away. Don't abandon the gospel. Don't return to alienation and hostility toward God in mind and deeds. If so, that would just prove that you don't have saving faith. Rather, stand steadfast. Hold fast to Christ. Stand firm and don't move. Don't shift from Christ. Kat and I, we, we send a lot of snail mail to friends and family, families in the States. And everything we send requires postage stamps. And envelopes and packages usually aren't handled very carefully by the, the postal workers, which results in ripped letters, crushed gifts, broken and damaged goods. However, postage stamps always seem to stick. So if there's anything we can learn from postage stamps, it's this. They stick to one thing until they get to their destination. And so we, we need to stick like a postage stamp to Christ. We need to constantly abide and remain bound to the hope of the gospel. And we know this gospel is the same gospel that the Colossian believers heard, believed, and by God's grace embraced. It's the same gospel that has come to us, that has saved us. It's never changed. When Paul talks about the gospel that has been proclaimed in all creation, verse 23, under heaven, he didn't mean that every person had heard the gospel. He's talking about the same gospel going from place to place, from city to city, and the gospel was being proclaimed widely throughout what was the known world at that time. And also, lastly, notice the gospel is what Paul became a minister of. This tells us that it wasn't Paul's choice 
or doing, or by his doing, that he became a minister of Christ. We know Paul's backstory. He was a persecutor of Christians. He wanted Christians imprisoned. But all of that changed because God saved Paul. And through Christ, Paul became a minister of the gospel. The word minister refers to a servant or a person working in the service of another. And that describes all of us. We're all in the service of another. We're all to minister on behalf of God. I read an article not too long ago talking about the Golden Gate Bridge. When, the, when they built the bridge in 1937, many of the workers were afraid that they might fall. In fact, 23 people on the first section of the bridge being built fell into the water and perished. And the work on the bridge was extremely slow as the men worked in constant fear for their lives. Then someone had the idea of putting a huge net under the bridge. And after the net was put in place, 10 more men fell, but they weren't killed as the others were. All 10 that fell were caught and were saved by the net. Their lives weren't lost. But here's the, the, the point. With the safety net there, the work on the bridge moved at a, at a greater pace than before because the men trusted the safety net and could concentrate on their work. And if they did accidentally fall, the net would sustain them. And so it is with the children of God. When we know that our future is secure, we can concentrate on the present. Jesus said famously in John 10, 27 to 29, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Brothers and sisters, we're secured in the love of Christ, so may we live fervently and zealously for the Lord. There's work to be done. Let us take the gospel message to our unbelieving friends, families, families, and communities. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can live in the present and devote our lives to doing the will of God. We've experienced the saving work of reconciliation. And now, again, we don't just sit down and relax. We become agents through whom God's work continues. We take the gospel of reconciliation to a world who needs reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So if you're here listening and don't know Jesus Christ, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And you'll go from an enemy of God to a friend of God, from a rebel to his child. This reminds me of a memory I have as a younger kid. And it's always stuck with me. It's, it was the care of my loving mom and dad. I remember that without fail, every time I would get sick with the cold or the flu or some virus, I would be in bed in pain and suffering. My mom would take care of me, bring me food, give me medicine, comfort me. But that wasn't the thing that stuck with me. It was, it was actually her words she would lay down next to me and tell me, and I know she meant every word of it, if I could take your sickness, I would, she would tell me. If I could take your sickness, I would. Rather than seeing me in pain and suffering, in her love, she'd rather be the one to experience that instead of me. The truth is, although genuine and gracious on her part, she has, she has no power to accomplish what she said. She couldn't exchange her health and take my sickness. Her parental love could only go so far. It couldn't do anything about my condition. 
And so it is with you, unbeliever. Listen, if you have any believing friends, trust me when I say this, they would be in an instant, they would in an instant, if they had the power to save you, they would. Why? Because they love you and they've tasted the goodness and kindness of the Lord and want you to know the grace of God as well. The reality is only God has the power to save. And he uses us and his message to bring the good news to blind eyes and deaf ears. And that, that power to save comes through the work of Christ. If you repent and believe in him, you will have eternal life. For our sake he made Christ to be sin for us, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Turn from your life of sin and turn to the living God. We've seen three things. We should know who we were, we should know who we are now, and we should know what we need to do. Once you were alienated, estranged from God, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and everyone since Adam said, not your will be done, but mine. But now you're reconciled to God through Christ, through Christ's death, and will be presented before him holy, blameless, and above reproach. In a different garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, said, not my will be done, but yours. Christ saves us, he loves us, and he'll love us to the very end. God's persevering power keeps our perseverance going, and in the end, we persevere because God has kept us by his power. In other words, God chose you, saved you, will keep you, and will work in your life until the end to make you more like Jesus Christ. Nothing will take you out of his hand. Not sin, not trials, not death. He'll save you, he saved you, and he'll keep you. What a comfort. We're not able to keep ourselves, but the Almighty God can and promises that he will. So going back to the beginning, life in a, is hard in a fallen world, and we all struggle. However, we're never without hope, strength, and joy to live the Christian life. God will bring about whatever he ordains for you and me, and God will provide all that we need to trust, to grow, and to obey him through it. We don't need to hang our heads, slump our bodies, think of ourselves as failures, or doubt the goodness of God in salvation. Rather, we need to make a renewed and committed effort by the power of the Holy Spirit to live in light of who we are and to do what he, he has called us to do. If we're knocked down seven times, we need to get up eight. The exhortation is to continue in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So in the physical or mental diaries, our day-to-day -day entries should read like this. Today, I lived for Christ. And to quote one last song, God's love is amazing, steady and unchanging. His love is a mountain firm beneath our feet. God has reconciled us to himself by the death of his son, Jesus Christ. So may we stand in amazement and remember who we were, who we are now because of Christ, and what we need to do in response to Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we confess our unworthiness before a holy and perfect God. How amazing that you've taken imperfect sinners and declared us perfect through Christ, who you sent to die in our place, that we may be reconciled to you. How amazing that we can stand holy, blameless, and above reproach before you. Help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to continue in the faith, to continue stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Help us to be useful vessels to our master. 
Help us to be instruments in your hands to proclaim the message of reconciliation. We thank you for your grace that saved us, that continues to sanctify us, that strengthens us for service, that helps us to serve you, and that's sufficient. We thank you and love you. Amen.